the Jewish views on the struggle for compensation post-World War II. New documents unveiled by the National Archive paint a grim picture. Ever wondered how to make tapas considerably more kosher? Chef Alan Rosenthal tells us how. And how you could leave a legacy in the community. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A former Lord Mayor of Bradford who was suspended by the Labour Party for posting a link to an article alleging a connection between Israel and Islamic State has said he did so to rubbish such claims. Khadim Hussein, who still serves as a councillor in Bradford, wrote above the post, There's no doubt who created ISIS and who is arming those vile terrorists. But Mr Hussein said that at no point was he suggesting that Israel could be held responsible for ISIS and that his intention was to highlight that all genocides are appalling acts. The government has denied claims that British aid is being used to pay salaries to convicted Palestinian terrorists. The accusation was published in the Mail on Sunday. The Department for International Development said the allegation was incorrect and that extensive measures are in place to ensure foreign aid doesn't support terror groups. But it's also reported that up to £25 million will be sent to the Palestinian Authority this year, just as claims emerge that President Mahmoud Abbas has spent £8 million on a new luxury palace. The London Beth Din has said it's very concerned after withdrawing its supervision of two Pesach hotels in Greece and Portugal. It's urged the community to be vigilant and ensure that their Pesach holiday is supervised by a recognised rabbinical authority. The two hotels mentioned by the United Synagogue as not being under the Beth Din are the Greek Hotel Olympia Riviera in Greece and the Viva Marina in Portugal. The Archbishop of Canterbury has joined other religious leaders in welcoming £1.5 million in funding for an initiative to build stronger faith-community relations. The Near Neighbours programme will use the funds to support social action projects across the UK. These have previously included the Salam Shalom Interfaith Kitchen for the Homeless. And finally, the JNS reports that Palestinians are among those requesting conversion to Judaism in Israel. About half of the annual requests to convert are from foreign workers and illegal immigrants, as well as Palestinians. Some 200 conversion cases were rejected over the past year by the Knesset Exceptions Committee, whose approval must be given. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. North London Raiders have all but secured back-to-back Premier Division titles after they beat Redbridge on Sunday morning. Liron Manny's first half hat-trick helped them to a 4-2 win, which means they now need just five points from their remaining four games to retain their title. With the Rio Olympic Games fast approaching, Israeli athletes have been continuing their preparations for this summer's event. Or Sasson won gold at the Junior Grand Prix in Georgia, while the Rhythmic Gymnast team won the ribbons final in France. And finally, former Israeli President and Prime Minister Shimon Peres has paid tribute to former Dutch football legend Johan Cruyff. He said Cruyff was a role model who promoted world peace. He brought the values of education into football and proved that on the field everyone is equal. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's start off this edition of The Jewish Views, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News. Joining me, Phil Dave, in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and foreign editor Stephen Oreschuk. Welcome to you both. Shall we start off with the front page as ever, Rich? 
Yep, the small matter of the decision on the 23rd of June as to whether or not our country remains in the EU. It's obviously something that's going to be taxing a lot of us, Jew and non-Jew, in the weeks and months to come. We've really kicked off the debate in terms of what it means for the Jewish community. In this week's paper, we've got a two-way yes-no or in-out debate, I suppose you can call it, between two senior cabinet ministers. We've got Rob Halfon and Teresa Villiers. Rob is very much in the in-camp, Teresa in the very much out-camp. We've got two really heavyweight polemic pieces by them, really describing it in great detail Issues that you might not ordinarily think are pertinent to the uh, Jewish community in terms of whether we stay in or out. Things like circumcision, things like shechita, future of kosher meat, things like the fight on terror. What does it mean about Britain's relationship with Israel and Europe's relationship with Israel? Can the UK, as Rob says, set an example for the UK when it comes to trade with Israel, relations with Israel? It's a very bewildering and complex issue, as our listeners obviously know. And hopefully these two people can shed some light on it today. and this week for our readers. And it's bizarre until actually reading that article, I'm quite sure that I don't think I comprehended anyway just how much it could affect our community because everyone has probably thought about it individually. I'm sure that there's not a day gone by now where people don't hear something to do with are we in or out of Europe, especially as it grows ever nearer to that all-important referendum date. But regardless of your persuasion, it does look as if, according to this, it, it will have quite an impact on the community one way or another. So interesting stuff. All right. Well, that's the front page. Let's have a look inside. And I believe that the National Archives, we're going to find out a little bit more about this later on in the show, but they've released some new documents, haven't they, that uh, is rather telling. Yeah. On Tuesday, uh, the National Archives were opened, revealing the ordeal that Holocaust survivors had to go through after the ordeal of the Holocaust. So they went through this this physical hell and then found themselves in administrational hell. The bureaucratic hoops that they had to jump through to get reparations, to get acknowledgement for what they went through. Post-German, West German government, post-war, put what was then a million pounds, I think it's worth something like 17 million pounds in, in old money, into this reparations account for the UK government to then allocate to worthy people. 4,000 people, which is obviously a minuscule amount in terms of the survivors post-war applied, only 1,000 were paid out and a lot of them were minuscule amounts. One particular man who died a, a few years ago at the grand old age of 98, Leon Greenman, one particular case here, he was an Auschwitz survivor, he lost his son, he lost his wife. The British government, it was like blood out of a stone. There's one official letter we're quoting here that the British government considered this man to be unbalanced, who appears to have only revenge for the death of his wife and child. And these are the sort of things that they had to go through. It seems to me like the ordeal that they went through in terms of the, the, the inability of the, of the, of the Allies post-war to, to see the ordeal these people went through and to in, encourage their recovery financially, psychologically or otherwise is, 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 is thrown into real stark contrast in this piece. And it's bizarre, isn't it, Stephen, that you just think that as soon as the World War was over, that that was it, it was the end. And thank goodness that the suffering of all of these Holocaust survivors had been through was over. But yet, of course, now this almost shows that their suffering continued, didn't it, in some horrible way? It did. The bureaucracy is staggering and it went on for absolutely years It seems like some of the reasons that the British authorities were using, as it were, to justify perhaps not giving out money, such as dual nationalities, even to the extent of considering whether conditions in one camp were the equivalent of 
two conditions in concentration camps. Mind-blowing, and your heart goes out to, to the poor victims. Really does indeed. Well, like I said, we're going to find out more about that later in this very show when I speak to Michael Newman from the AJR. There's a video that has gone around online that's unfortunately sparking rather a lot of controversy, isn't it? It's of an IDF soldier who appears to kill a Palestinian. What is this about and, and why is it so controversial? Okay, so this video has gone viral. It was taken by a resident in Hebron on the West Bank. There is a human rights group, an Israeli human rights group called Betzalem, who have distributed hundreds of cameras for residents to film incidents with regards to Israeli actions. This is one of them. It shows the aftermath of a stabbing attack. Two Palestinians sought to and did stab an Israeli soldier. So the video starts with the Israeli soldier being led away on a stretcher. He seems to have light injuries. The paramedics and the ambulance staff are around, as are the soldiers, but nobody seems to be attending to the injured Palestinian man who is seen on the ground, clearly alive. Within about 90 seconds of the soldier being led away in the ambulance, an Israeli soldier is seen to come from behind, speak to uh, colleagues and uh, open fire with his rifle, shooting the Palestinian man in the head. The reaction in Israel has been huge, but perhaps not as you'd suspect. A study by, uh, a poll by Channel 2 has found that the majority of Israelis polled felt that this officer should not be detained and investigated as he has been. The reaction in uh, the UK has come from BICOM, pro-Israel think tank, and they said that it's right that he be investigated. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one, really, because unfortunately, with this going on on a daily basis now, it would appear one Palestinian is stabbing an Israeli, then an Israeli soldier is shooting the Palestinian dead. It almost feels as if there's something now pretty normal about this. and And it seems almost a bit insulting in one sense that now that suddenly a member of the IDF is being targeted and investigated for having really done what some might argue is defence, but then others would argue there's no defence at all if the guy's lying there on the ground in the first place. Well, there's no audio, which would obviously be helpful. It just shows, I think, how raw and bewildering this 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 conflict has become because if you look at the video and I, I suggest if you haven't seen it please do watch it it's online it's on the Jewish News's website although discretion is advised yeah it's, it's blurred out where it needs to be in black and white terms this looks like a soldier who wasn't even involved in the initial confrontation he seems to have appeared from nowhere and then suddenly points his gun at this man lying injured and still on the ground and shoots him in the head the IDF has charged this man with murder I mean, it's not like there's a sense of a cover-up here. The IDF have taken swift and decisive action. Whether this man is found guilty and faces his punishment, then, then so be it. But the initial reaction for a lot of people that have Israel in their hearts, me included, is to be defensive about Israel and to stand up for this man's actions immediately and have that as the default position. It's a very, obviously, uh, difficult subject to discuss. Yeah, it really is. And I'm sure, like I said, that it will unfold as the weeks go on. Now, scientists from the UK and from Israel are apparently set to unite in a bid to try and combat various diseases. What what are we talking about here? What diseases are they trying to tackle? They've got a range of nasties in their sights and they've made some fabulous progress, uh, really the cutting edge of science. 
This was started by Britain's former ambassador to Israel, Matthew Gould, and now involves hundreds of scientists in Israel and the UK. Both countries are leading in this field. We're talking about stem cell research, diseases such as multiple sclerosis, diabetes, cancer, heart conditions. There is millions of pounds for collaborative ventures, and this has been ongoing for several years now. Basically, they occasionally come together, and we've got the next meetup early April, 300 scientists from both countries to find out where they go from here. So the next five years of research, what will those areas be in and who will get the money? And it's amazing, I think, how much we take for granted the contribution and the size of the contribution, I should say, that both British and Israeli scientists make to modern medicine. Now, we are nearly at an end for this paper review. However, I know that, Richard, you're eager to shoehorn one more story in. What's this? I hear about a nice Jewish girl joining the jihad. Yeah, we have this account on page four and five of a journalist. I have to be honest, this woman isn't one of the Bethnal Green school children who have been ensnared by these jihadists on Twitter and social media. This is a person who actually took it upon herself as a research project to see how far she could go to um, ensnare some of these women on Twitter who encourage other women who they perceive to be young Muslims, obviously vulnerable teenagers, a lot of them, to join the caliphate and become jihadi brides. I won't go into detail now. It's an interesting piece in terms of how she so easily, within a matter of weeks, was encouraged to to move to Syria, given her instructions as as the best routes to go, which husband she might like, whether she wanted to marry a fighter or etc. And what it takes to become a a so-called jihadi bride. The fact that she happens to be Jewish as well was an interesting angle, but it's an interesting uh, colourful news piece that our readers might be interested in looking at. I'm sure they will. A fascinating article, I'm sure indeed. Well, that's unfortunately where we're going to have to leave it for this week. But thank you very much to editor Richard Farr and foreign editor Stephen Oreschuk. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've just been hearing, the National Archive have released hundreds of documents this week, which shows the struggle many victims of the Holocaust had to go through in order to receive financial compensation. The outcome for many was far from ideal and many people got entangled within a post-war bureaucratic mess. To explore this further, I've been speaking to the CEO of the AJR, the Association of Jewish Refugees, Michael Newman. I started by asking him to remind us what the situation for Jewish refugees would have been like following the end of World War II. Well, many of the refugees had arrived in quite penniless circumstances, 1938-39, And of course, they weren't always able to work. Many of them had been interned during the Second World War. And the war was a major hiatus in their lives. So post-war, it was about rebuilding. Many of them had decided not to return to Germany, to Austria. Some went to America and to what was Palestine. But for those who stayed, it was about rebuilding, putting down roots in a new country, continuing to adapt to a new way of life, a language, and at the same time was finding out about the fates of their loved ones. And then a bit later on, it was the process of dealing with reparations uh, from Germany, Austria, recovering property, claiming pensions, that kind of thing. Where did AJR come into it? How did this start? How did the organisation come about? The AJR was founded by the refugees themselves. It was a group of people who 
after the period of internment, which ended in May 1941, got together to form an organisation, a self-help organisation for themselves, by themselves. So it was founded in July 1941, so we're celebrating our 75th anniversary this year. And it was really to organise a series of social welfare assistance for the refugees. There was an employment centre, there became, there was afterwards old age homes for the refugees, social workers, outreach workers, all, all services designed to look after the needs of the refugees. And maybe services that ordinarily we'd take for granted now, perhaps courtesy of the state as a whole, but maybe in those days didn't yes, necessarily exist. That was right. It's, it's pre-48, it's pre the welfare state. And it was really seen as an organisation that meant that they could look after themselves. They didn't want to be a burden. The last thing they wanted to do was to impinge, or to outstay their welcome and bring attention to themselves unduly. So they tried to organise things for themselves as a community, their own community. However, there was this compensation fund apparently set up so that victims of the Holocaust could get some sort of reimbursement for what they'd been through. But yet these documents that we hear of in the news this week have highlighted that things maybe weren't as straightforward as they should have been. So can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about the amount of money that was set aside first? What, what was that? Sorry. Well, the scheme itself was established in 1964. It was a bilateral agreement between West Germany and Britain. And it was a million pounds that Germany gave to the United Kingdom, I should say, for reparations to be paid to victims of Nazi persecution who were British. This is very different from the Wiedergutmachung, the compensation payments that West Germany was paying already by then to victims of Nazi persecution who had originally been from Germany and other countries. And those payments were divided into two categories, either pensions for people who had physical damage, mental health damage from being in camps and ghettos and used as slave labourers and one-off payments for people who were had loss of economic opportunity or lost their parents, lost their schooling. All the refugees had the opportunity to apply through the German scheme for reparations. The 1964 German-British agreement provided compensation for British subjects who had uh, compensation requirements. And as I was saying, that these documents released by the National Archive this week demonstrates that it maybe wasn't as straightforward a process. So where were the complications in their applications and, and who was entitled and why didn't everyone get a, a fair share of this? Well, as I say, the scheme was primarily for British people. So automatically it was not targeted at the Jewish community. But the people who applied then had to prove that they had been victims. And so you see in the files accounts of people describing their wartime experiences, whether they were interned in concentration camps, whether they were British soldiers who were captured as POWs, other people who claimed to have fallen victim of Nazi persecution in some way. And it was about them trying to convince the British government, the authorities, that they had an entitlement. And so you see in the files descriptions, quite harrowing descriptions in some cases, and you also see the officials' responses saying, we can't necessarily prove this person is entitled, we can't necessarily verify their 
claim, so we'll send it to another archive. There were lots of cross-referencing with something called the ITS, the International Tracing Service, which was in Germany, which by that point had collected thousands, if not millions, of documents from the Second World War. So with the National Archive, what, what are these documents about sort of what what you've seen them yourself so can you maybe give us an insight as as to what they are and and how they highlight what they highlight so they are individual case files so person a makes an application for compensation from the fund they are they receive their original letter was received the application form that they filled in and then the case notes by the worker working through the individual applications, annotated, cross-reference, correspondence back to the applicant, documents to help verify a claim, all kinds of correspondence that connects a person to their circumstances. It must have been just hearing what you're saying and trying to comprehend what people who came over here following Nazi persecution must have gone through. It almost seems intensely unfair that suddenly they'd have to go through what felt like a load of aggravation, a load of heartache, just to get something in the way of probably what was tantamount to quite a small amount of financial compensation, which could never have really made up for what they'd been through anyway. Do you agree with that? Was it a lot of effort for not very much in return? Difficult to quantify the compensation awards anyway, because the fund was capped. So there was only ever a limited amount of money. And as well as the fund being capped, an individual could only receive a maximum of £4,000. I suppose £4,000 in 1964 did represent quite a substantial sum. But for others, there was curious calculations as to how they worked out how much a person would be entitled to. The issue of reparation is also quite a subjective thing. For some people, it would have been quite needed. The the money would have come in very useful and helped them get themselves on their feet. Perhaps they hadn't been able to work post-war or they had been unsuccessful in their career, perhaps dating back to their persecution. But for others, it was quite a substantial sum. So in the round, you're talking about, I think, relatively modest amounts of money. But I suppose for most people, it would have been symbolic that there was recognition that there were atrocities and that there was some form of reparation for that. And I'm guessing an organisation such as the AJR also played its part in trying to help the process of recovery and regaining a normal life. But could you maybe tell us a little bit about what AJR does now, just moving away slightly from that, because I think it's only fair that we hear that obviously moving on quite a considerable number of years since that ghastly time in history, AJR obviously still very much has a place in the community, but what is it that you do now? Today, we are primarily a social welfare services agency. We attend to the day-to-day needs of Holocaust refugees and survivors, and in some cases, the second and even the third generation. So our primary focus is to provide a series of social services. We have a team of social workers who do daily visits to members, We work with residential homes. We disperse reparation monies that have come from the Claims Conference, a New York organization for social welfare programs. And we bring respite. We help provide carers. In some cases, it's financial assistance. 
it's a whole range of practical services for first-generation Holocaust refugees. If anyone listening would like more information on AJR, perhaps maybe they think that they require help from your organisation or they just want more information, where should they go and what should they do? Well, our website is www.ajr.org.uk. We have a phone number, 020-8385-3074. We have a Facebook page. And we have a series of events around the country through our regional groups and anyone who's connected to that episode in history, first generation, all their families are very welcome. Michael Newman, the CEO of AJR, the Association of Jewish Refugees, unpicking the post-war bureaucratic mess that victims of the Holocaust were up against in a bid for financial compensation. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, I shall be joining Clive and Adam along with journalist and author Emma Klein. Together, we will be discussing the importance of interfaith. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Gina Ross from Jewish Legacy to discuss the amazing work her charity does. Now, it does seem as if in London we have access to a right array of different types of cuisine. Of course, if you are bound by the laws of Kashrus, it can make it a trifle difficult to be allowed to sample all of them. Well, chef and author Alan Rosenthal is putting pay to that idea. He's hosting a new class at JW3 on how to make tapas kosher. Kate Fulton has been finding out more, and she started by asking Alan to tell us a bit about his book, ultimate one-pot dishes. It's all about uh, one-pot cooking throughout the world. So there's everything from a classic beef and ale, British stew, through to a tagine inspired by Moroccan cooking and also some curries. So it's very worldly. So what has taken you onto this new world of tapas? And for those who don't know, I'm sure everybody knows, just explain what tapas is and So tapas origins. is the classic Spanish nibbly food where you have a selection of little dishes. Invariably... Spanish food tends to include quite a lot of pork and shellfish. So um, there was a challenge around trying to come up with some recipes that actually didn't include those elements. So offering some really tasty dishes for kosher crowd. My background is quite worldly as well, I guess. I did a French and Spanish degree, so I spent quite a lot of time traveling in Spain and living, which ended up teaching me quite a lot about their food and it's a type of food that I really love so uh, it makes sense that that I tried to put together some some kosher tapas recipes. It is quite a sort of sharing food isn't it? I imagine eating tapas wandering down the well Ramblas or wherever around there and eating these little little nibbly bits but as you say they're mainly bits of prawns bits of eels bits of yeah sh- all the things that we fish. shouldn't be eating yeah. so, and, and also one of the challenges mixing milk and mead so there's quite a lot of dishes that that use milk which obviously causes a challenge if, if you're also wanting to eat milk uh, meat at the same time tell us some of the dishes then what sort of things will you be will you be demonstrating and for us to be trying sure so at uh, jw3 at my course coming up i will be cooking some croquettes which normally are made with milk but i'll be using some milk alternatives are they like potato croquettes actually a true croquetta isn't made with any potato really it's actually a bechamel sauce which is then chilled and, and rolled into little balls covered in breadcrumbs and deep fried so really healthy 
but it's obviously dairy milk based so what i'm going to be demonstrating is a version without the milk so instead of milk we'll be using soya milk i'm going to be teaching pollo al ajillo which is a spanish chicken dish with garlic and some chili obviously that's the meat element so that that's drives the reason for doing the milk-free croquettes we'll do a paella as well that'll be a wow. chicken, chicken paella a nice traditional dish and how are they normally served well, a paella would normally serve in a paellera, which is a, a traditional Spanish paella-making dish, and you'd do it on a wooden, on a wood fire outside, and it would give a lovely crusty bottom to the to the rice. JW3 probably won't have a huge stock of, of paelleras, so we will no doubt use some sort of wide frying pan, which I will discover when I when I get there on on the day. But you, as long as you're using a wide, fairly shallow frying pan you can you can use you can make a paella in, in anything. and anything sweet actually we aren't cooking anything sweet on, on on the day and when you're in these groups how do you sort of get like a good sort of a group atmosphere and get everybody listening and watching without making a complete mess presumably they're cooking at the same time I run classes at Leith School of Food and Wine as well, so I'm quite used to teaching. So they're different standards, surely. Oh, well, time you know, at least. I'm, sh- I'm sure JW3 is just as good as, as Leith. I mean, the, the, the classes at Leith are 100% for practical. Chefs. No, no, no. It's for the general for the general public, oh, so they, right. they, they they can come and book on the course. But at JW3, there aren't so many cooking stations. So there's a lot of watching as I'm presenting, talking to the guests and trying to make them make them laugh and enjoy enjoy what I'm teaching them. It's 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 just about building rapport with different people like any kind of teaching really. So anybody who's listening who's feeling I am a complete novice, they should not fear and come anyway. Oh, definitely. There's nothing to be scared of. I, I think I'm quite uh, approachable in my... Yes, you may be, but, you know, it can be scary if you've never actually made anything before. Definitely, but it, all, it ultimately comes down to the experience and the teacher can, can drive a, a more positive experience if it's not quite as, as stressful and if they're, if they're not quite as nerve-wracking. Do people have to bring their own ingredients or are they provided? All ingredients are provided and equipment. So everything's kosher, certified kosher, so you don't have to bring anything with you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Was it, what was your background? Into, were you brought up cooking? I always liked cooking as a kid. I guess it must have been inspired by my mom and my dad at the time. And just cooking was always something that I enjoyed. And, and as, as I did a languages degree, I found myself living abroad quite a lot and being inspired by food from overseas. I also lived in Melbourne for a few years and... A lot of the food over there is inspired by, by Asia, Southeast Asia as well. Great flavours coming from, from that part of the world. It's nice actually to watch people cook. Sometimes you watch these programmes and you think, actually, someone's been sous-chefing and chopping and buying all the things. But quite honestly, what you're watching is just the, is just the mixing. Sometimes it's quite nice to actually be shown what to get from the beginning, what the things look like yeah. from the outset. No, I think that's true. I'm always quite surprised during my classes how many people benefit from being shown how to how to cut an onion, how to yes, and how to peel how a garlic, peel some garlic, how to crush some garlic without a garlic crusher, and just use your blade of your knife, and how to take the seeds out of pomegranates, all sorts of yes, some things which you was, can take for granted. Yeah. Absolutely, I was go on then. Tell us now that we're tell us about the pomegranates. Oh, I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> I love but, that one. That's one of my favourite tricks. But, well, 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 there's two schools of thought. Yes, I'm, I mean I actually prefer the 
the, the non-bashing route, but actually most people enjoy bashing a pomegranate. So if you want to take the seeds out of the pomegranate, you cut it in half along, along the, the equator. circumference. Yeah. yeah, the equator, exactly. And then you get a, a wooden spoon of all that ilk and a, and a metal bowl and just hold the pomegranate in your hand and give it a whack on the on the skin side on the skin and just side. carry on bashing yeah. and use your hand a little bit to to just manipulate the seeds out and and then they tend to drop out but so does a lot of juice and it goes <laughs> and a mess yeah but it's still you've got all your seeds out you're not picking them out the no, other way around and you get rid of a lot of tension that <laughs> and you know there's passover pesach is coming up soon so that you'll be able to combine any tapas for Pesach? Well, I, I suppose cinnamon ball is almost a croquetta, isn't it? So it's a sweet version. You're asking me, had I made any sweet? Well, go for cinnamon balls. Isn't that what everyone eats on Pesach? Well, yeah. Actually, cinnamon's a quite a Spanish ingredient as well. They use it in lots of, lots of, uh, lots of dishes. So, Do you find your friends always feel a bit nervous when you're coming over? For dinner, some do, but but I eat everything. I'm actually the even least... bad cooking is. <laughs> I think you have to try hard to cook really badly. I mean, I, I I don't think it's it's not that difficult to throw something fairly simple together. I, I've never, I've no one's ever fed me where it's been absolutely inedible. And and if someone wants to feed you, that's some generosity from them. Yeah. I never, I'd never say this. I'm is not coming because you I'm can't. Yeah. It. And do you find kosher food can be quite heavy and quite dense? Is there anything we can do to try and lighten our load to really improve improve our own stomachs? There is some kosher food or traditionally Jewish food that's quite heavy, but I think that's based very much on the Ashkenazi diet, which comes from Eastern Europe, quite cold climates, where there needed to be a lot of, of fat and, 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 and carbs to keep you warm in the winter. But on the other hand, the Sephardi contingency from the Middle East and from the south of Spain, and the, the food there is much lighter. So I think like, like all cooking, it's the, the flavours and heaviness or textures all, all, all point at the, the, the original where, where the food came from in the first place. And if we want to come and on the 7th of April to hear you, how do we get tickets? Are there still tickets available? I believe there may well be one or two tickets left, but they're selling thick and fast. So presumably on the JW3, JW3 website? JW3 website, yeah, which is jw3.org.uk. Chef, author, and amongst other things, teacher... Alan Rosenthal there, talking to Kate Fulton about his latest class at JW3, Tapas, Spanish food for kosher cooks. And if you'd like more information, then you can always go, as Alan has just said, to the JW3 website, which is jw3.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Now, on to a slightly more serious subject. Have you ever considered how you want to be remembered? Well, recent years has shown an alarming decline in legacy income for Jewish charities. Luckily, the organisation Jewish Legacy is trying to combat this. Gina Ross is their chief executive, and community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to her to find out more about it. She started by asking Gina to tell us a bit about the history of her organisation. Jewish Legacy is a charity campaign that actually began in 2012 with the aim 
to increase the awareness amongst Jewish people of the importance of leaving legacies to one of our partner charities. Jewish Legacy works with 47 Jewish charities from across the spectrum, small and big charities. And our charity partners work with us to promote the idea of legacy giving. And I see there are 46 Jewish charities. 46 stroke 47. I had no idea there yeah. were so many. And this is across the whole aspect of Judaism, right yes. from the, you know, the, the most liberal to the mm-hmm. most orthodox. Yeah, we, we have the liberal Judaism, the United Synagogue, the reform movement. We have lots and lots of different charities who do a lot of different things. Somebody told me that you're having a Remember a Jewish Charity event in May. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What we're doing is in May we're having a Legacy Shabbat, which is on May 21st. But preceding that, there will be a, a Legacy Week. During that week, we're asking the Jewish community to think about leaving legacies, leaving a gift in their will to one of our charity partners. We want people to think about the importance of legacy giving because to charities, this is a massive source of income. They rely on this for their day-to-day projects. They rely on this for future planning. In fact, many of our charities, it constitutes a third of their voluntary income. And so it is a really, really massive thing for for our charities and is this countrywide yeah we're, we're going to go f- it's from london all the way all over england yeah all over england and scotland and scotland as yeah. well yeah. right when you say you're going to try and persuade people how, how are you going to do that well we we are working with the liberal judaism the reform movement the united synagogue Herbert Lubavitch and the Federation of Synagogues to bring the message to their communities. So we're going to be asking the rabbis to talk about legacy giving in their sermons, if they will. We're going to be putting out brochures in the synagogues. We're going to be advertising in the Jewish newspapers. We want the people to see this message and to think about it and to discuss it and to realise the importance. Legacy giving, leaving a gift in your will, is not just for the very rich. This is not just for the very old. This is something that we all need to get into. This is something that's vital for our community. And how do people execute this? For instance, if they've already made their will Mm. and up till now have not included Jewish legacy, what do they do to make it happen? It's very, very easy. They just need to contact a solicitor and write a codicil to their will. It's just an additional document and it just adds something to their will and then they can put how much money they want to leave to one of our charities. The fact is that our charities are not saying, you know, leave this amount, leave that amount. We're saying leave any amount that you can. Think about them. Just think about it. In this day and age, with the current levels of anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera, we need to work together. We need to pool our resources as a community and really give to our, our Jewish charities because otherwise, tomorrow, there will be no Jewish charities. And we really need to do that. We really need to think about that. That's a very sobering thought, isn't it? You know, today, according to the recent JPR research... What is JPR? Um, it's a recent report that discusses the surveys amongst lots and lots of different ideas. So this one was in relation to legacies and, and charity giving. And they were looking at how many people give to different charities. And this report said that, according to around 60% of Jewish people, give to non-Jewish and Jewish charities. 
25% of people give to non-Jewish charities above Jewish charities. 8% of the Jewish community give to only Jewish charities and 7% don't donate at all. But what was startling to me about these figures is that 25% of Jewish people don't give to Jewish charities. And I think that's, you know, is a very, very worrying thought. And it might be something that that's in dis- the future... It is indeed a disquieting thought, isn't it? That a quarter of the Jewish population don't actually give to Jewish charities? Exactly. And you're hoping, presumably, that as from the 16th of May, uh, that week, that they'll... We're hoping that... Change more, their minds. We're hoping more people will think about it and think about the importance of legacy giving. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley, Phil Dave and me today is journalist and author Emma Klein. And the subject today is based on what we heard a little earlier on in the news with Viv. The Near Neighbours programme has received funding to the value of £1.5 million to help build stronger faith-community relations. So we thought we would discuss the importance of interfaith. How much does it benefit the way our community is perceived and does it help us get on better with people from other faiths? A big subject, so let's start with you, Emma. Well, this is something I suppose I've dealt with for for many years. It started off a long, long time ago with Christian-Jewish relations. And obviously, one of the very important dates in the history of Christian-Jewish relations was 1965, when there was the papal edict, Nostra Etate, which said the Jews did not kill Christ and Judaism is a valid religion like any other. And that was a very, very important That came from the Pope, didn't it? It came from the, yes, the Pope. It was a papal edict, yes, from the Pope. It was, now, was it John the 23rd or John Paul? Now, that's the point, because John the 23rd did many wonderful things, but he died, you know, he, he wasn't, he died within a few years of being Pope. Either way, that's 2,000 years it took them to Yeah, exactly. To to well, it. I mean, so nearly 2,000 years, because one of the main causes of anti-Semitism over all the years was the Christ-killing accusation. And this dispelled that. Christian-Jewish relations did start even earlier, post-Nazism, as it was. After the Second World War, Christians came towards Jews more. And I think the Council of Christians and Jews and things like that were set up well before Nostra Etate in 1965. So they were very important. The thing is, they were two-way, Jewish, Christian, Christian, Jewish. Much, much later in the 80s, Muslims, as it were, came on board. And something was formed called the Three Faiths Forum in this country. I'm sure other things in other countries. And it was also very important to have Muslims on board, given the immigration into Europe of so many Muslims, originally also obviously from the countries under you know, French domination, from North Africa, Algeria, and places like that. But obviously now... As we know, there are many, many, many more Muslims. So interfaith relations are incredibly important because if people can work together, sympathise and feel good together, it will help. And obviously with the threat of things like ISIL, if many faiths could get together, people of many faiths and 
armies and many faiths. Yeah, or whatever, yeah you've given us the history of it, but does it in fact work? That's the point. And also, can I ask why? Why is it just the Abrahamic religions? Is it because we've they're the only ones that we really have had an issue with in the past. I don't see us having interfaith with Hinduism. That's or a very, very good point, Buddhism. Adam. I, that's an excellent point. I don't know. Possibly because Hinduism, I think, is basically a very tolerant religion. And also a very different one as well. Let's admit all of the Abrahamic religions are all so similar that, frankly, they believe what they believe to be right. And I think that that's another major part of it. And well, the, the, fact, is, the fact is, isn't it, that in fact... The Abrahamic religions are a bit like the different sorts of Judaism that you have. That's you have Reformed Jews, point. Orthodox Jews, and and liberal Jews. Oh, and, gracious! And, and now we're we're and moving Haredi on. And now ultra Orthodox as well. You have nowadays. They're the only ones who are propagating enough to continue. Unfortunately. So as if it wasn't going to be bad enough trying to unpick the subject of interfaith as a whole, we're now looking whether or not interfaith <laughs> within our own community <laughs> is working or not. It's, My goodness me! It's interesting. It, it, to me. It almost smacks of marriage guidance counselling <laughs> in the sense that we're, we're all so related, yeah. Judaism, Christianity and Islam, that we, we're, we're effectively family and, and interfaith is really just like squabbling children that can't get on <laughs> and the parents are trying to get them together and work something out. I think that's a very interesting point. Once the Christ-killing accusation has been dispelled, because that sort of thing before obviously was an obstacle to this can we say brotherly love, as it were? Sometimes, it, if sometimes you're the killer, you all killed Christ, things like that. that no, I, don't, I, don't, I think, to be fair, I don't think everybody thought that. No, I but... think you're quite right, but obviously, people who wanted to be aggressive used that. But nowadays, there's more anti Semitism. That's than... a very good point. That's to do with Israel. So, would Sadly, interfaith combat that? Then? That's a very good uh, They. There should be so much publicity, which there isn't, that the only place in the Middle East where Christians can flourish is in Israel. And, and barely anyone knows that. It's, I mean, I don't know if the Israelis are bad at propaganda or if here what Clive would say is anti-Semitism suppresses things like that. I'm not sure, but obviously that should be known. So technically the... speaking, you could argue then in that case that Israel is actually a bastion for interfaith, not as some people perceive it to be Jews only. That's a very good point. Rather than the apartheid state, interfaith, that's a very good point, Phil. I've always found the subject of interfaith absolutely extraordinary because I never went to a Jewish school. I've said this many times on this programme before, and I know that a lot of people find it bizarre that I have such an interest in the community if I didn't. <laughs> However, because I... I didn't it's never really been a subject to me at all because I've always mixed with people of other faiths sure. and therefore it's never even crossed my mind to work on a better understanding of other faiths because I learned about so many others so I wonder how prevalent within this whole problem of ours of interfaith do faith schools play? I know that is um, another subject altogether, but one could I, argue that at our most impressionable age, we learn primarily about one faith. It's very interesting, actually, because it's a concern of mine, Phil, because I also didn't go to a Jewish school, so I've always socialised with Jews, well, more non-Jews than Jews. Yeah. And, I've, again, and sometimes you don't even ask them what religion they are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't. You That's just... how broad-minded I am. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but no, it's, it's true. I've never felt the need to because I've always been able to get on with people from different faiths. However, making the conscious decision of bringing my family or, or actually having my family in northwest London and sending them to Jewish schools, I actually feel there's a responsibility 
upon me and my wife to educate the children because they will be living in a very Jewish world. They will have perception of the world actually being predominantly Jewish because of where they live. And they don't have that contact. And I do worry about that right. a bit. And I do I think that it's a parent's responsibility to educate these children. And I tell them about when they hear about the attacks in Brussels and France. Mm -hmm. And to them, it's almost like they see the baddies as villains, mm -hmm. which the actual people well, that are doing are, it are villains. But, still are villains. But they're, they're reported as Muslim terrorists. And when my children who, who go to a Jewish school constantly hear Muslim and terrorist together, well, quite naturally, they're going to start relating that's Islam to terrorism. And, and it's up to me to stop that. And you have to say that most of the victims happen to be Muslims as well of, of ISIL Absolutely. and things like that. Yes. Many of them. No, which we don't hear very often, That's do right. we, really? Similarly to not hearing about Christians well, doing that, okay in Israel. That Same was, thing. That was very interesting in what's happened recently in Pakistan. Right. The, the attack was against Christian Pakistanis, but in fact many more Muslim Pakistanis were killed. Sure than Christian ones. You see, and I think this is where a lot of the problem stems from with interfaith as well. It's all well and good to have interfaith projects, which don't get me wrong, all do brilliant work, and I'm not for a second going to start putting them down. But I think where we do fall down in society is that we are constantly fed information in a real negative light mm. of different religions, right. whether it be Islam to yeah. do with ISIS terrorists sure. or perhaps also to do with the Israel subjects. I mean, I know that we know as Jews that Israel Israel is not necessarily the baddie that people make it's it out perfect, to be. It's not perfect, but it's not the baddie. Yeah. No, absolutely. Not the baddie, not perfect, mm -hmm. but all the same. I mean, I know sure. we know this, so there's no need to go down that road. But the point being is that if people who don't have a vested interest in their particular section of society, i.e. Islam, Judaism, whatever, and all they are getting information-wise about that particular religion is what they see on the news, on their television screens, mm. in the papers, then naturally you're going to have an objection towards it. And I reckon that that's a massive chunk of the problem to do with interfaith. Yeah. Actually, if you think about it, it's because this country in particular is becoming more and more and more secular mm -hmm, so that mm -hmm. people don't think of themselves anymore as being Christians, Christians mm -hmm. Jews or Muslims, except the ultra-religious in all three and so is there really any need for us at all? Do you know, Clive, I actually think what you've just pointed out there shows that there's a greater need for it than ever before. You do. And when I say that, I'm talking about, whether it's interfaith, I guess it is, interfaith between Jews, Christians, Muslims and atheists mm -hmm. and agnostics. Mm -hmm. Because that is such a huge section of society. Whenever I'm trying to defend Israel... Mm -hmm. I don't defend everything they do, but I defend, try to defend a lot of what they do. It's often with people who are irreligious, with atheists. Mm -hmm. And th there's, there doesn't seem to be any engagement with these people, yet they make up such a large section of society. Mm -hmm. And it, it worries me that we're not talking to these. They're normally fairly liberal people. They're normally quite intelligent people because it, uh, I often find that an atheist, whether you agree with them or not, they've thought about it. So they're actually rather educated and intelligent people who have made a decision. And if we're not <laughs> engaging with this huge mm. section, mm. then 
we are going to have the same problems again and again of stereotyping. But in fact, you're absolutely right. It it is more needed because the atheists, or the atheists, I do know some atheists quite well, who are very religious atheists, if that makes sense. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. They are so anti all religions that Mm. it causes terrible tensions. Yeah. But you do have to question whether or not there is any harm in being anti religion versus actually doing something about being anti-religion in other words attacking somebody just because they're religious if somebody was of an atheist persuasion which the irony is of course that so many people are atheists now that it's almost a religion in itself it is, it is. as Clive it is. said yes but if an atheist attacks somebody just because they are Jewish then that is obviously abhorrent and wrong but if they're trying to put across a valid argument for why they don't believe religion is credible or worthwhile then is there anything wrong with that? I don't think there's anything no, wrong no, with someone challenging religion. No, no, they're allowed to do that. I quite agree with you, as long as they don't attack people who no, are No, I think yes. you're right. There's nothing wrong with that. But they, they have to be able to do that from in the same way that we do about any other religion, from a position of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's often the case that it's not. And I'm not saying the atheist. I'm saying all people often like to talk without the actual <laughs> knowledge behind what they're saying. Mm. Now, I've found... When I've engaged with people about the issue of Israel and when I've engaged with atheists in particular, they tend to be on the side of the Palestinians. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, it's, it's, you can almost guess who, sure. what they're going to say. Not always, but often you can. What I found, which is very interesting, is that they'll speak to me and they'll be against everything I say. I mean, they'll take what I'm saying is quite offensive because I'm supporting Israel. Mm -hmm. As soon as I then say, I do appreciate that the vast majority of Islam is a peaceful religion, then you see them soften suddenly because they instantly think that you're one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And, then, and this is a case point. of interfaith. You have, we have to have this dialogue to be able sure. to understand the other side sure. so we can put their point in. But actually, the, the atheists that I've come across are the most intolerant of them all. Yes. And they always argue with you. I mean, I know one particular case where an atheist woman was listening to a young man who was asked why he hadn't married his girlfriend. <laughs> and he said, I can't marry her because she's getting married in a, she wants to get married in a church. And I can't get married in a church. That would be breaking everything, everything <laughs> that I think of. In support of atheists, they don't behead people. Which right, well, there you go. Yes, I suppose that's one plus side. And I think also the other plus side that we really should say in the interest of balance is the way that you were saying that atheists tend to be on the side of Palestinians. Technically speaking, you could say Jews tend to be on the side of Israel. No, so, no. I mean, it's, yeah. it's you yeah, know... It, atheists absolutely. are neither one thing or other, but automatically anyone who isn't Jewish or anti-Jewish Jews, sorry, or are Jews who are anti-Jewish, would tend to be on the side of the Palestinians. I think that for as long as we sort of sit around this table and analyse different religions' views or what have you, I'm, I'm guessing that this is all part and parcel of the problem of interfaith. It's just an understanding, or a lack of understanding, I should say, of what other people believe. Exactly the um, problem. For as long as, I think anyway, for as long as people just accept, some people think one way, some think another, isn't that the battle over? Sure, well, that's sure. unfortunately where we've got to stop this discussion, but it was all extremely interesting. My thanks to our guest, journalist and author Emma Klein. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. At the obscure daily and seemingly trivial task of taking the ashes out from the temple altar, 
The Hammer-Labor bit states, we have here two apparently contradictory instructions. On the one hand, the Torah insists on the wearing of holy garments for the ordinary, everyday task of removing the ashes from the altar. On the other, it prescribes or counsels the completion of that task in inferior garments. Rabbeinu Bakhya ben Asher notes that even though the priest change into lesser clothing, that adornment is still holy. He deduces from this that the most menial of ritual or religious acts be enacted as if they were the most sacred of acts. Every mitzvah has its meaning and deserves its chidor, its glorification and beautification, no matter how trivial it might seem. This interpretation gives me the opportunity to give honour, kavod, to our many congregants all around the country who perform what might be termed as trivial or perhaps largely invisible acts, helping in care, maybe cleaning the silverware that adorns our Torah scrolls, or making a donation to Marka Simcha, all beautify their life, those of others, and therefore our whole community. Thank you. Rabbeinu Bakya Ibn Pakuda, on the other hand, emphasizes the role of the priest to provide kavod, honor, to God and the people in appropriate ways, being in his Shabbat best for God, and dressing simply so as not to lord his privilege over the people, but for them to see him act as a role model. To me, the ultimate act of haughtiness is to take another's life. If that person believes that they are doing so in honour of God, then they do so with a warped, deranged relationship with what they perceive to be the will of God and the role of their religion. In the past few days, there have been a horrific attacks in Istanbul, Brussels, Iskandaria in Iraq and Lahore that targeted Jews, Christians, Muslims or were indiscriminate. We cannot fathom the minds of the perpetrators, only condemn them for what they were, evil. It is difficult for us to remain rational in such times, when one sees and hears apocalyptic reports. Yet we know that those who act like the priests, who served God with utter joy, whilst humbly walking among the community they also served, who will fulfil the glorious tasks in life and the most mundane are and always will be in the vast majority. The prophet Jeremiah states, Thus said the Eternal One, Let not the wise person glory in their wisdom, nor the strong glory in their strength, or the rich revel in their riches. Only in this should one glory, in earnest devotion to me, for I, the Eternal One, act with kindness, justice and equity in the world. In these do I delight, declares the Eternal One. Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our thought for the week there. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Michael Newman, Alan Rosenthal, Gina Ross, and also thanks very much to our schmooze guest, Emma Klein, and of course, to you at home for listening. And I suppose we mustn't forget to thank the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.